You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. How's everybody doing? Good. We are in the middle of our Lenten series. You'll be noticing that every one of our themes every week is uh, centered around this idea of just one. Just one kingdom, just one source this week. Every week's going to have a just one theme, taking us all the way through Lent. And uh, it's going to culminate in Resurrection Sunday. And so we wanted to tag onto that same just one idea and basically say, be thinking about just one person that you could pray about, that you could uh, think about inviting, just one person that could come. It's, a, it's like the greatest truth in human history, the resurrection. And we, we try to figure out how to make ourselves more awake and more aware to that. I think we're getting better and better every year. It's one of the reasons why we're doing Lent this year. Um, how, how do we prepare ourselves for that? But if you'll be thinking of just one person, by the way, you can do more than one. That's okay. I hear that they have 12,000 seats in Beasley. Thank you. A few chuckles. Uh, But yeah, we'll put them behind the curtain. Like, it's all great. We'll stuff them in there. It's great. I think we have three or 4,000 seats ready. So let's fill those up. If we all came plus one, that would be maybe not in the traditional sense of plus one. But yeah, if we, if we all came with some invitation handed out, that would be an amazing thing to be able to share the resurrection with other people that need to encounter that because the tomb is still empty. Yeah, do you guys remember? First surf remembered. Let's see, let's try that again. The tomb is still empty. Oh man, we, gotta, we got five weeks. We better get ready. But that's what Lent is all about. Lent is an opportunity for us to examine. So Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, right? Uh, This statement, remember that you came from dust and to dust. By the way, I'm supposed to mention, I just realized, I totally botched that up. You can get those invitations on your way out the door. If you have a place of business or an establishment where you'd like to hang up a poster, you can find posters at different places in the lobby. So get those as well um, to let people know about um, Resurrection Day services. Uh, if you can do that without getting fired. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, <laughs> good. So Lent begins with Ash Wednesday. It is a call to remember that from dust you came and to dust you shall return. You are, as a human being, a paradox in your nature. On one hand, you are crowned with glory, carrying the image of God, eternity set in your hearts. Uh, the psalmist says, crown just a little lower than the angel's. On the other hand, you are nothing more than a dirt clod if God doesn't breathe his life into you. And so both of these things are true, and Lent tries to help us connect with, see, this is hard for me this year, because I saw some of you walk in this morning, and some of you are struggling. And and I'm more of a prophet, but if there's a shepherd in me, the shepherd in me wants to preach a message about the hope of resurrection, but that's coming, and so we have to trust I suppose as a preacher, I have to trust in the work of Lent uh, to do its work in all of us. Maybe even especially my prayer would be those of you that come in here with struggle, empty tanks this morning, a bunch of questions for God. Uh, Let's trust in the work of Lent to get us to the resurrection. Lent says, for seven weeks, let's ask the question, what is it that needs to die in us so that something new can be resurrected? You can't have resurrection without death. You don't get both. You don't get to have life and resurrection. In order for something to be resurrected, something has to die. And so the question of Lent is, what is it that we can, 
What is it that can die inside of us so that something new can be born? So it's seven weeks of asking really tough questions. It's like a whole season of confession. That's what's hard about Lent. If it's done right, it's seven weeks of confession. Maybe not outward, maybe more inward, but it's introspection, it's reflecting. You don't walk out of Lent. You walk out of Lent with that reminder of those ashes. I was in uh, Florida for Ash Wednesday. I actually had to speak at a Bible study. And um, yeah, it was rough. I know, it was like 82 degrees. I actually didn't go to the beach because I was tired of the sun. (laughs) What is this thing, this glowing orb in the sky? Um, so, So I was at with a bunch of students, a bunch of college students leading a study. And I was like, if you're here tonight, obviously... I know how you feel about Valentine's Day, so why don't we take all the Valentines and we'll burn them and we'll use the ashes to... It actually went over really well in a group of college students. Like, yes, let's do it. I'll grab the Valentines. Somebody grab a lighter. So it was good. It was good. Usually Ash Wednesday doesn't fall on Valentine's Day like that, but it so happens Resurrection Day is falling on April Fool's, so... There's a whole, but like mostly bad church jokes waiting to happen this year all over the world will be, especially our country, horrible jokes of people trying to capitalize and just not quite getting there. Hopefully we won't be among that crowd. Uh, What are we talking about? Lent. We're walking through the seven days of Jesus's last week for seven weeks, taking one day a week to walk through the last week of Jesus's life called the week of passion. So let's, we did Luke last week. We're going to do Matthew next week. Why not do Mark this week? Sounds like a great idea. Mark 11. Here we go. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I love verses like that. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was tired. It's like normal, like you and me. Got hungry. That hasn't really landed well in any service, but that's okay. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. In Matthew, it says that the tree immediately like withers up. And I picture, I don't know why, but I picture like the wicked witch of the east (laughs) in the Wizard of Oz and her feet, like as she gets hit by the house, like... I picture that happening to the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. I don't know how that worked. And Mark doesn't record it quite the same as Matthew, but that's what we're told in Matthew is that the tree withers up immediately. Now, on one hand, this seems like Jesus is either an an idiot because he doesn't know when fig season is, or he's in a Snickers commercial because he's like super hangry. Because... Like, I picture, like, the disciples in a Snickers commercial, like, Jesus, here, have one of these. He's like, why? Because you're acting like a diva. Oh, okay. Like, what, did, what did the fig tree do to you? It's not even the season for figs. Take it easy on the fig tree. But if, if Jesus isn't an idiot, because I would think we would assume such, he is, as a good Jewish rabbi, trying to make a much larger, greater point, like, he's like, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And the disciples are trying to figure out what is he teaching from something in the text, okay? So they're not seeing like a hungry Jesus who all of a sudden can't stand to be hungry and is cursing trees. They're seeing a rabbinical lesson. Now here's a picture of a fig tree, just to give you an idea of what we're working with here. Beautiful. Uh, 
Here's a next picture here shows you what it looks like when it's the season for figs. This is what Jesus is looking for. He doesn't find it. It's not the right time of year. And so Jesus uses this illustration to talk about the fig tree in first century Judaism is symbolic of rabbinic spiritual leadership. It is not symbolic of Israel. If your commentary says that, throw your commentary away and get a new one because it doesn't mean Israel. The olive tree symbolizes Israel. The fig tree has always symbolized spiritual, pharisaic, rabbinic leadership. And here's why. It's in the text. Proverbs 27, 18. One who guards, say these words after me. The one who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit. And whoever protects their master will be honored. Let's leave that verse right up there for just a moment. The one who guards a fig tree. Well, if you had a fig tree on your property, oh, you had a gift from God because that, they didn't have candy in their world. The, you had to have natural sugar and one of the most naturally, most sugary things you can have is figs. So having a fig tree on your property is like having a candy store, a candy tree. Like you, you'll do anything to cultivate this tree to keep it going. Now, I have a team leader, uh, works for Impact in Albany, New York. He's been to Israel twice with me, and he came back from the trip, and he was resolute on planting a fig tree in his front yard. Did I mention that he lived in Albany, New York? He, is, he, he has talked to some specialists. They say it can be done, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. He said, perfect. Because that's what Proverbs 27 tells me. He who guards a fig tree will eat its fruit. He has to build a shelter around it every winter. Now, as that tree gets bigger and bigger, eh, I don't know what he's going to do. But he builds this shelter around it every winter. And so far, he's gotten it to survive for two winters. I, going on, I think this is his third winter in Albany, New York. He's done pretty well. But the second part of this sentence says this, and whoever protects their master, now the root word for master in the Hebrew is the word rav. Say rav. That's the root word for rabbi. They don't have rabbis when Proverbs was written. But later, the rabbis looked back on that and they said, oh, if, if you'll guard, if you, and protect is the same word as serve. Sometimes in the Hebrew, uh, more Colloquially, you'll say shmush. Say shmush. Shmush. Okay, to shmush a rabbi is to serve him in a way that says thank you. That's to shmush your rabbi. Okay, sounds, I don't know if there's any etymological connection to shmooze, but shmush. Say shmush. Okay, if you will shmush your rav, you will be honored. If you will, if you work hard to cultivate a fig tree, you will eat its sweet fruit in the same way that if you shmush your rabbi, your rebbe, you will eat sweet things, the teachings that fall from that rabbi. Uh, Aaron and I have followed a teacher by the name of Ray over to Israel, and he's brilliant at this. He does this lesson on the first day of every trip so that he gets to say, you would shmush your rabbi, and he adds this, he says, you know, I've never seen a rabbi carry his own pack. So what does he do for the rest of the trip? Not carry his own pack. Because <laughs> everybody's like wanting to say thank you to rabbis. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, if you will protect your master, 
you will be honored. If you'll serve your Rebbe, you will eat sweet things. And so the fig tree, based on Proverbs, became symbolic of rabbinic leadership. Tracking with me? So why is Jesus cursing the fig tree? The disciples would have picked up on this relatively quickly, if not immediately. What is Je Jesus is obviously condemning rabbinic leadership of the Jewish people. What could, what's the problem? Well, you could look back on Jesus's teachings. He's been doing this for three years. He's been critiquing the Pharisees. The Pharisees would be the rabbinic system of their day. He's been critiquing the Pharisees for a couple of things, but one of them is that they keep adding to the heart of God's law. God gave you 613 commandments in Torah. How many? 613, okay. In my tassel, on every tassel, there are 613 intersections with threads that cross to remind us of the 613 commands in Torah. In Jesus' day, they had added 3,000 on top of the 613. In the century that follows Jesus, they would add another 3,000. So that you had 10 times the laws in the Talmud that God gave you, now it was well-intentioned. They were, I wish we had a fraction, a fraction of the devotion that the Pharisees or the rabbis had in our world, a fraction. So before you throw them in the, under the bus, make, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because we, we, have, we have, oh, they would put us, they would put, it was well-intentioned. They just maybe missed the forest for the trees, but their devotion was spot on. I wish we would be that devoted to the right things, which is Jesus' critique. Jesus says the heart of the law, two commandments, what are they? Love God, love other people. The whole law hinges on the idea of love. God's heart, I have a director of staff development. He has this new metaphor he's using everywhere he goes in our organization. He says, have you ever, when you were little, can you remember leaning up maybe on a parent's chest and feeling their heartbeat or somebody that you were close to? He says, we want to become better and better at creating the kind of spaces that allow us to lean up on God's chest and feel his heartbeat. Yes. The Torah, the heartbeat of Torah is that we would love other people. And when we love other people and when we create space for the outsider or people who lack belonging, God's heart picks up and skips a beat because that's what his, and Jesus says, you're adding all of these rules and you're losing the heartbeat of Torah. This is the condemnation. So let's see what happens when we add to all, what happens to worship? We just preached on worship. What happens to worship when we just add to and add to and make it more complicated and then heap on and heap on rather than remembering the heartbeat of God? Here we go. Let's, let's go Mark 11. We're gonna keep moving. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. So in this, let's, let's go back and sit on that last verse. Uh, in their day, when you came to the temple, you came to worship. But the biggest part of your worship in the temple system was sacrifices. And so that meant that you needed sacrifices. You needed bulls, you needed goats, you needed rams. You, needed, you very rarely needed a bull, but every now and then. Um, you needed doves and pigeons. You needed grain. And so their idea was, some of you are coming from a long way away. We'll just sell the stuff for you at the, we'll make sure it's already been pre-approved, it's unblemished, it's ready for sacrifice. 
So you just come, it's a, I mean, it's a efficient idea. And, and there was another thing. This is, this is an example of adding on. They said, when you come to give your tithes, you can't give Roman money because Roman currency has the image of the emperor and an inscription that says essentially he's God. So that's idolatry. And so in order, before you can give that money to, to, uh, tie, to the temple, I don't know why, before you can give that money to the temple, you've got to exchange Roman money for Jewish money. So they had money changers. Question, did God ever say in Leviticus or any other part of the Torah, you can't give Roman money? That would be weird because Roma doesn't exist yet, but you get the point. No, it does, he didn't give any requirements of what kind of money he could receive. But in their desire to not commit idolatry, they had added these extra rules. Do you see? Now, here's the real problem. Where are we going to do all this? Well, they set up shop, literally, on top of the box that Herod built that's called the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is a big box. And on top of the box is where they had all these money changers and people selling doves, pigeons, sheep, goat, whatever. And you, you would have these tables and these merchants there, but that space, the space where they're setting up, was supposed to be reserved for the alien, the eunuch, the foreigner, the refugee, anybody who's not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord for any reason there's still a sacred space that's supposed to be kept for the outsider so that they can worship the God of Israel. And they've set up shop there. And Jesus is livid. He goes, and he, he goes in and he starts driving them out. Let's see what he has to say. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, it, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus does something brilliant in rabbinical world. He does what's called Gezerah Shiva. Say Gezerah Shiva. It's where a rabbi will take two passages that are not connected in context. They have nothing to do with each other. And because both passages use one phrase, similar phrase, the rabbi will tie them together and teach, teach a sermon from two passages that weren't originally intended to go together. And when you do that, all the trained Jewish listeners go, ho, 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 boom. Did you see what he just did? He just tied those two passages together. It's like mic drop. Ra Rabbi Judo, like, <laughs> Jesus ties Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 together because of the Hebrew phrasing, my house called. Ties them together in a Gezerah Shavah and does something brilliant for all of his Jewish listeners. Let's take a look-see. <laughs> Isaiah 56 this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, Isaiah is preaching a sermon here and he's like, 
God wants you to maintain justice, mishpat, and he wants you to do what's right. And so Isaiah, well, what's right? And Isaiah's gonna go on to say, what's right is making sure you care for all the people that God cares about. That's what's right. Listen, what, look, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And, net, and let no eunuch complain, what's he say? I am only a, and his disciples are going, oh, snap. That's so good. What's sitting right outside Jerusalem? A dried up fig tree. And Jesus is like, forget about the eunuch being a dry tree. Your spiritual leadership is a dry tree. <laughs> okay. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. If you're a eunuch, you can't go into the temple, according to Deuteronomy. And Isaiah says, don't you worry. If you're a eunuch and you love Adonai with all your heart and all your soul and all your might, there is a, your name is written within the walls of the temple. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. I love this. Isaiah talks about their, they can't offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. Foreigners and eunuchs can't get to the altar. And he's like, oh, they have offerings and sacrifices and they will be accepted in my house of prayer. And Jesus references this in the courts that they're desecrating where these people are supposed to be offer acceptable worship. Yes. But then he ties it in Gezerah Shavah to Jeremiah 7. Let's have a more look-see. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner or the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The condemnation will continue. And then a few verses later, we read this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Go ahead, add to your burnt offerings to your sac and to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. 
<laughs> in Isaiah 56, he said that eunuchs and foreigners would offer acceptable sacrifices. And in Jeremiah 7, there's a statement about your sacrifices, just eat it yourself because it ain't going anywhere. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and I spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jeremiah says, when, I, when we went to Mount Sinai, the law was about a lot more than just getting your temple worship correct. The law was about a lot of other things. I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts and they went backward and not forward. There, there, is a, there is a brilliant rabbinical condemnation that Jesus engages in here where he says, this is what God desires and yet you'll, you won't have anything of it because you're so bent on following your own ways. And God wants to accept the sacrifices of their worship and he doesn't want to accept anything of yours because you don't want anything to do with his wisdom or his methods. Oh, man. Did you know this has always been God's plan? This isn't something new. We're reading about it in Isaiah and Jeremiah. This isn't some Jesus thing. Jesus is just trying to turn them on to the thing that was always been from day one. Do you remember Abraham? Through you I'm gonna bless all nations. This has always been God's heart. That we could bless all nations. This isn't something new. Look at Jeremiah 6. Stand at the crossroads. Ask for the ancient paths. What kind of paths? Ancient. This hasn't changed. It's been the same path forever. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But we said we will not walk in it. Now, there, <sighs> wisdom. One of my favorite chapters. Where does wisdom come from? Where, where does all of this, where do I lean into to get this wisdom, to know how I'm supposed to live? Job 28 is one of my favorite chapters. It's the center of the book of Job. Job happens to be a really big chiasm. If you're new here and you have no idea what a chiasm is, Google that. It'll be a great 20, uh, two minutes that will lead into about an hour. But it'll be great. Job is this gigantic chiasm. The, the, the treasure of Job sitting right at the center, and it happens to be Job 28. We didn't have time to read it, so I'll give you the cliff notes, and you go read it later on this week. Job says, Job is talking, and he says, what, man has done some incredible things. We can mine out of the earth gold, silver, copper, precious stones, we, we dig tunnels and shafts into the earth so that we can mine out of them treasure. And then Job says, do you want to know one thing that, God, that man has never done? Do you want to know one thing that man's never found, no matter how deep we've dug our tunnel? Wisdom. Because wisdom only comes from who? God. Do we believe that? We just sang a worship song, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise him, his name forevermore, for endless days we will sing his praise. Really? I mean, this is Lent. 
So we're supposed to be looking inside of ourselves and reflecting. Really? Do you believe that this God forevermore will praise his name forevermore is the real source for wisdom? Or is he the source of wisdom when you want to sing a great worship song and when his wisdom seems to suit you really well? But then when it comes to loving our enemies or creating space for the outsider or any of that kind of stuff, I mean, I don't know why I get so fired up about this, but this is a thing, and nobody preaches on it because I think we think it's silly and stupid, and I don't think it's silly and stupid. I can't get on Facebook anymore because the people that I worship next to that claim to know and speak for Jesus, I can't stand to look at the crap that we post on Facebook. I, I don't know what we're doing. I, I honestly, I can tell you one thing. You want to Lent? Project, go scroll through your Facebook wall and tell me if you believe that for endless days we will sing the praise of the source of wisdom. But one more passage to make this point a little bit more clear. James 3. This came from Aaron in Sermon Club. So good. Every now and then, that guy. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. There, there is, this is James Dr. Phil moment. Like, how's that working out for you? Okay, when you live according to selfish ambition, you guys like that, didn't you? When you live according to selfish ambition, it doesn't work. Tell me about how that works in your family, in your marriage, or in your parenting. Tell me how selfish ambition works at your place of work. Back to my original point. Tell me how selfish ambition works on your Facebook wall. It doesn't work. It only produces disorder and every evil practice. Let's finish it up. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, listen to these words, is first of all pure and then peace-loving and then considerate and then submissive and then full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Those words are the opposite. They're the opposite of selfish ambition. Mercy, consideration, peace, purity, impartial, that's the opposite of selfish ambition. That's what God's wisdom looks like. God's wisdom will always be full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and so it'll always be that way. Even when it seems counterintuitive, even when it seems counterintuitive, that will always be God's way. Uh, see, are we done here? Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, um, we need to move towards the Lord's table, uh, and we need to look at some implications that I'm pretty fired up about, but you can probably tell that by now. Uh, but to do that, we're going to have our servers go back. If you're visiting with us this morning, we have an open table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus... You need to join us, eat with us, um, because you're family. 
And uh, just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. Implications, first one. Leaning on our own wisdom, wisdom driven by selfish ambition produces disorder and evil. Leaning on our own wisdom. Wisdom that's driven by selfish ambition. I can tell you from my life, that hasn't worked well in my relationships. Any of them. No matter how significant or insignificant, no matter how intimate or shallow, no matter wisdom driven by selfish ambition doesn't work. I have noticed how much it's in my parenting. My wife, my wife left this weekend for like a, a girl retreat and that meant she left the kids at home. <laughs> I haven't done that in years. I'll tell you one thing that's happened. When I don't have my wife to lean on, I'll tell you how quickly selfish ambition shows up in my parenting. Oh, it's been, it's been at times an ugly four days. She comes back tonight. Whew. I got a lot of selfish ambition in my heart that I have to root out. It doesn't work. It doesn't work when I parent that way. It doesn't work when I love my wife that way. It doesn't work when I do my job that way. But next implication. God's wisdom produces the fruit of purity, peace, consideration, and mercy. When you're leaning on God's wisdom, it will produce fruit that is other-centered, that creates space for other people to see God. And this is the kind of, uh, it's not selfish ambition, it's the opposite. And when your life is full of the opposite, not self, selfish ambition, but full of peace and consideration and mercy and forgiveness, when your life is full of those kinds of things, God uses that to restore other people. Not in the ways that we would have him restore other people, not in the timeline that he would have, but those are the tools that God will use to restore other people. Other-centered fruit. Let's go to the next implication. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping religious rules. I thought that was the definition of righteousness. No, it's not. Righteousness, the Hebrew word is zedekah. Say zedekah. If you were to go to a modern day synagogue, in the back of the room, they have a box. It's called your Zedeka box. Into that box, you place all of your over and above financial gifts. And that's what they use to help the needy, to help the foreigner, to deal with the orphan, to be generous. That's what Zedeka looks like. Because Zedeka is the heart of God. Righteousness is not a matter of keeping the rules. Righteousness is embodying the heart of God. It is rooted in God's restorative work. Righteousness is not a matter of rule keeping. It is a matter of partnering with God in his restorative work. Third implication. We don't inspire people to righteousness by our rule following. We don't inspire people to righteousness with our rightness. That is what I find so distasteful about what we publicly, we get, what a tool social networking is. What an amazing blessing. And we choose to publicly. Talk about how right we are. And post stupid videos about why our is God's wisdom still God's wisdom? 
Or is it only God's wisdom for this building, but not for politics? It's only God's wisdom for this building, but not for relationships. It's only God's wisdom for this building, but not for that issue. Last implication. By the way, we inspire them by making peace. We inspire them by making, was that the last implication? Did I lose track? Let's go back. I think I lost track. We don't inspire people to righteousness by our rule following. We inspire them by making peace. You bring people to God when you look like what God looks like. And how does God look? Loving, generous, forgiving, merciful, compassionate, pure, peace-loving, considerate. When you look like that, you put God on display, that draws people to himself. Always will. And so I don't know about you, but this is what Lent is for. I said it earlier, Lent Lent is like a seven-week confessional. When I look inside my heart, there is a lot of selfish ambition that I have to root out. And there's a lot of confessing that I need to do over some bread and some juice this morning. Because I want, I want something more considerate, more merciful, more selfless to be resurrected this season. When I encounter the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday, I need it to mean something for me. And I want a better version of me to walk forward from that day than is standing before you today. We've been here before. And it's a good cycle every single year to come back to. May that be our prayer. Jesus gave us a moment to do this with. He took bread. He broke it that night. He passed it amongst his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the grace of Jesus. And later on in that meal, he took a cup. He passed it amongst his disciples. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the grace of Jesus. Father God, my prayer today is that we would lean our head up against your chest and we would feel your heartbeat. And we would notice what it is that makes your heart beat so passionately. I pray we would examine the story of you wrapping yourself in flesh, coming and walking among us, throwing over tables because they get in the way of others seeing you clearly. Would we go through the temple courts of our own hearts? We are the temple. We're the new temple. What is in our temple courts? And would we purge it of all the garbage that gets in the way of people being able to worship and love you with all their heart and all their soul and all their might? Would we know what makes your heart beat? And then would we examine our own heartbeat? And when we realize that the two are out of sync and out of rhythm, would you help us do the work this Lenten season of getting our heartbeat on rhythm and in harmony with yours? God, we love you. We, we are, to say thankful, we are, we, are, we are full of gratitude. We are also dependent on your forgiveness and your steadfast patience and love and grace. And we, we are thrilled that that is what you love to do. You love to forgive because we, we need it. So would you speak to us and bless us? Would you guide us? Would you direct our steps?
And we pray all of this in the name of the resurrected Jesus this morning. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.